Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the Communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the communique. The print versions in these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the coroner's court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the clinical communique, focusing on acute care, the future leaders communique, designed for recent health graduates, and the residential aged care communique, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition. Welcome to this podcast based on our August 2020 edition of the Residential Aged Care Communique. I'm Professor Joseph Ibrahim, the Editor-in-Chief of that edition. This podcast will focus and describe a case of a person with dementia who died following treatment with a bleach bath in an aged care home. The podcast begins with my editorial. We will then move on to examine the case in detail, followed up with three commentaries on specific topics. These topics include building out non-technical skills, the recognition and reporting of pain for residents, and the final topic is on the use of off-label therapy and medication management. Let's now listen to the editorial. Contents of this podcast include an editorial, the case report, two halves do not equal one, commentary number one, building our non-technical skills, commentary number two, Recognition and reporting of pain and changing health status of residents. And commentary number three, off-label therapy and medication management. Welcome to this podcast. The COVID-19 pandemic continues in unrelenting waves across the globe. Our published print editions and earlier podcasts on COVID-19 are still highly relevant to what is occurring. For those who want to read or listen to this information, it is all available on our website. And if you want even more, then listen to all the 29 episodes on COVID-19 and aged care available at profjo.com.au. In this podcast, we address non-COVID related issues. All aged care homes must continue to function and provide the care for residents, irrespective of whether directly or indirectly affected by the pandemic. The case we present in this issue has multiple dimensions that cover the full spectrum of symptom management of pain through to organizational capability in the use of off-script medication. The tragedy is these multiple gaps in care contribute to the death of a resident, impacting on family and staff alike. 
It's particularly devastating when we are well-intentioned and work in good faith with our medical and nursing colleagues to have preventable harm occur. Our three expert commentaries give their insights into the circumstances. Dr. Shelley Jeffcott, an expert in human factors psychology, explains the importance of building our non-technical skills. Angela Casey reinforces the importance of pain management, especially in persons with dementia. Experienced aged care pharmacist, Dr. Natalie Jakonovic discusses the merits of off-label therapy and medication management. Let's now listen to the case. It's titled, Two Halves Do Not Equal One. Case number, New South Wales, 2014, 276764. Mrs. E.P. was an 87-year-old woman of South Pacific heritage, residing in a metropolitan residential aged care facility. She had moved into residential care seven years prior to her death and had been diagnosed with dementia around the same time. As her dementia progressed, Mrs. E.P. lost her mobility, becoming wheelchair-bound, and lost the ability to communicate with her carers in English. Her other past medical history included chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, pulmonary embolus, hypertension, diabetes, and bronchiectasis. In early 2014, Mrs. E.P. developed a rash over her arms, legs, and trunk. Over the following months, numerous unsuccessful treatments were trialled by Mrs. E.P.'s general practitioner, and she was referred to a dermatologist. The dermatologist reviewed Mrs. E.P. at the RACS and diagnosed her with rapidly progressive erosive impetigo, secondary to a known methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA. A bleach bath consisting of adding half a cup or 125 millilitres of household bleach to half a bathtub or 80 litres of lukewarm water is a dermatological treatment occasionally prescribed for skin infections. The two registered nurses working in the residential aged care facility on that day discussed the proposed treatment plan with the dermatologist after he had examined Mrs. E.P. Both nurses understood directions for a treatment involving a bleach bath, consisting of ratios of half bleach and half water, to treat the rash. When it was conveyed to the dermatologist that the facility did not have a bath, alternate methods of administering the bleach solution were discussed. Before leaving the facility, the dermatologist rang Mrs. E.P.'s general practitioner in the presence of the nursing staff. Neither nurse documented the discussion in Mrs. E.P.'s medical file, and the dermatologist did not make any contemporaneous notes in the residence record. The dermatologist later gave evidence that he did not intend for any treatment to take place until it had been clarified by Mrs. E.P.'s general practitioner. The treatment plan, as it was understood by the registered nurses, was then relayed to the residential aged care facility's care manager. This plan involved towels soaked in a solution of half bleach to half water and applied to Mrs. E.P.'s skin.
there was a recognition that this treatment was unusual and unfamiliar to the nursing staff, and concerns were also raised about the lack of documentation of the plan. However, the dermatologist was not contacted for clarification, and Mrs. E.P.'s family were not contacted about the proposed treatment. The care manager purchased the bleach that afternoon at the supermarket on her way home from work. The following morning, a Friday, the first bleach treatment took place, directed by the care manager and assisted by two assistants in nursing. A bleach solution was prepared by pouring one container of bleach into a bucket and adding equal parts water. As she sat in a shower chair in the bathroom, dry towels were draped over Mrs. E.P. and held up bandages. A plastic cup was used to pour the bleach solution over the towels and the solution was reapplied every five minutes. At the end of the treatment, Mrs. E.P.'s skin was washed down. Subsequently, directions for the bleach treatment were entered into Mrs. E.P.'s record by nursing staff, describing the method of administration, duration of treatment and solution of one bottle of bleach to equal amounts of water. The treatment was intended to continue daily over the weekend. According to staff, Mrs. E.P. did not appear distressed during or after the initial treatment and photographs of her skin were taken to monitor progress. The treatment continued in a similar fashion on both Saturday and Sunday, although on these occasions Mrs. E.P. was restrained in the shower chair by a safety belt and left unsupervised for periods of time. On Sunday morning, prior to that day's treatment, concerns were raised that the skin on Mrs. E.P.'s right side appeared angry. She was reviewed by another nurse who felt that her skin remained unchanged. That day, discoloration of Mrs. E.P.'s skin was documented as brown blotches over her chest area, and she was shivering after her shower. That evening, a progress note in Mrs. E.P.'s file made by an RN stated, skin appears red in some areas and other areas are like burned skin. On Monday morning, staff were concerned that Mrs. E.P.'s skin appeared very raw and treatment was ceased pending further directions from her general practitioner. She was reviewed at 9.21pm that evening by the general practitioner who noted Whilst there was some redness in treated areas, he felt that the skin lesions appeared to be healing and instructed the nursing staff to continue the treatments. On Tuesday morning, nursing staff again documented that Mrs. E.P.'s skin remains raw in some places. Around 2pm, she was reviewed again by her general practitioner, who this time found the skin to be more irritated than it was the day before. He prescribed Solugel and instructed verbally that the bleach treatments were to cease. At 7.45pm that evening, Mrs. E.P. was reviewed by a registered nurse who was shocked by what she saw. She described that Mrs. E.P. appeared to be distressed and in pain with large red areas across her body which were weeping. She called triple zero 
and Mrs. E.P. was transported to a tertiary metropolitan hospital. The following day, she was transferred to a specialist burns unit, with burns to approximately 15% of her total body surface area. She remained an inpatient for 47 days and was discharged back to the residential aged care facility with significant improvement to her burns. Eight days after she returned to the residential aged care facility, Mrs. E.P.'s condition deteriorated and she was readmitted to hospital. She remained there until her death ten days later. Autopsy Findings The cause of death, determined after autopsy, was found to be the combined effects of chemical burn wounds, ischemic heart disease and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease on a background of dementia. At inquest, numerous specialists gave evidence that Mrs. E.P. had evidence of other significant comorbidities. Further, there was no evidence that the burn wounds had deteriorated or become a source of sepsis prior to Mrs. E.P.'s death. The forensic pathologist gave oral evidence that given the expert opinion, she had revised her original findings. The pathologist opined that Mrs. E.P.'s direct cause of death was the combined effects of ischemic heart disease and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease on a background of chemical burns and dementia. Investigation At inquest, the details of the dermatologist's consultation and discussions with nursing staff were in contention. Both nurses had a clear recollection that the dermatologist had recommended Mrs. E.P. be treated in a bath comprising of half bleach and half water, with no mention of the terms cup or tub. One nurse stated that she expressed concerns that it would burn Mrs. E.P.'s skin, and she was reassured by the dermatologist that the role of the treatment was to remove the bacteria. There was further discussion about the method of administration of the bleach bath once the nurses informed the dermatologist that the facility did not have a bath. The nurses stated that the idea of soaking towels in the solution and applying them to Mrs. E.P.'s skin was then discussed with the dermatologist. The nurses witnessed the dermatologist make a phone call to Mrs. E.P.'s general practitioner but they did not take part in that conversation. Nursing staff also assumed that the dermatologist had documented a treatment plan in Mrs. E.P.'s medical record, as he had been given her file open to the correct page. At the end of the consultation, the nurses understood that the dermatologist had provided them with directions to proceed immediately with the bleach treatment. The nurses conceded that despite the unusual nature of the treatment and the misgivings they had about the topical use of household bleach and lack of written directions, none of the nursing staff sought further clarification or a written treatment order. The residential aged care facilities care manager also conceded that correct process for obtaining medications at the nursing home was to order through the pharmacy rather than purchasing it at the supermarket.
the dermatologist gave evidence that the correct treatment for Mrs. E.P.'s condition was a bleach bath, consisting of ratios of half a cup of household bleach to half a bathtub of water. He provided a document titled Bleach Bath Instructions, which he ordinarily provided to any patients for whom he prescribed this treatment, but had not supplied the document to the nursing home, as he did not have it with him at the time. When he was advised that the residential aged care facility did not have a bath, the dermatologist stated that he had discussed the administration of the solution in the shower as a compromise, using a 10-litre bucket. He did not provide directions for this solution at the time, as he was unsure of the dilution required. He had planned to look this up and provide further direction, but before he could do so, he had received a phone call advising him that Mrs. E.P. had been admitted to hospital with burns. The dermatologist did not recall any discussion about applying towels soaked in a bleach solution as an alternate means of administering the treatment. In oral evidence, the dermatologist stated that he did not give the nurses any instructions in relation to administering the bleach treatment in the shower and that he did not expect the nurses to commence the bleach treatment until the general practitioner had formulated a treatment plan. However, in a letter to the general practitioner dated the day after his consultation with Mrs. E.P., the dermatologist wrote, I have instructed the nurses to give the patient bleach baths or the equivalent in the shower of half a cup of bleach to half a tub of bath water. The dermatologist wrote on notes for his own medical records, but did not make any notes in the residential aged care facilities file. The day after Mrs. E.P. had been admitted to hospital, the dermatologist returned to the nursing home and made a handwritten note in her medical file as follows. To have bleach baths of half a cup of bleach to half a tub of water or similar concentration. The dermatologist conceded that it was an oversight not to make a record in Mrs. E.P.'s records at the time of the initial consultation. The general practitioner also gave evidence that he was contacted by telephone by the dermatologist and informed that the best treatment was to apply a solution of half a cup of bleach to half a tub of water. The general practitioner understood the dermatologist to be giving directions to nursing home staff during the phone call as he could hear other female voices interacting in the phone conversation. From this conversation, the general practitioner did not form the opinion that the nursing home was relying on directions from him. He also recalled some discussion about alternate methods of administering the treatment, but did not recall the plan for solution-soaked towels to be used. The coroner concluded that the dermatologist had informed the general practitioner in the presence of two nurses that the appropriate treatment for Mrs. E.P.'s skin condition was bleach baths using half a cup of bleach to half a bathtub of water. The coroner found that the nurses were mistaken in their understanding that the solution was to consist of half bleach and half water. 
The coroner also accepted that the dermatologist did not himself intend to provide instructions for the nurses to perform the bleach bath in the shower, but intended to hand care back to the general practitioner and expect the general practitioner to provide guidance prior to the treatments. However, the coroner also found that the dermatologist failed to communicate this intention and that it was not unreasonable for the nurses and general practitioner to form the impression that the nurses were to commence administering the treatment immediately. She also found it more likely than not that there was some mention of towels during the dermatologist's consultation. The coroner deemed that it was a significant failing of the dermatologist that he did not clearly and unambiguously record in the nursing home records that the bleach treatment was not to be commenced until further direction had been provided, nor verbally conveyed this to the nursing staff and general practitioner. Further, the onus was the specialist dermatologist to provide subsequent clarification in writing for the correct dilution of bleach and an appropriate administration method. The coroner found that the registered nurses, as the practitioners implementing the treatment, had failed in their responsibility to ensure they were administering it correctly and required written instructions from a doctor. Treatment should have been delayed until a written treatment order had been provided. Coroner's Recommendations the coroner identified a positive cultural change that had taken place at the residential aged care facility, including increased assistance, training and education to the facility staff. Amongst the coroner's findings, it was recommended that any training provided should include evaluation of clinical competency in the skill being taught. Further, the coroner also recommended that the assertiveness training be provided to nursing staff, particularly in relation to their interactions with medical staff and raising internal issues of concern. Let's now listen to the first commentary from Dr. Shelley Jeffcott. The commentary is titled, Building Our Non-Technical Skills. At 87 years old and with severe dementia, the quality of Mrs. E.P.'s life was not helped with a 48-day stay in the burns unit of an acute hospital. This was not a fine end to her life. She was a kind, caring, generous and supportive mother of eight and schoolteacher, and she deserved better. She was subjected to a treatment that may have been painful and distressing to her without proper consent from listed contact persons and was removed from the familiar surroundings of her care home. It has things she owned and cherished that may have helped her remember and the comforting routines built up over seven years that were provided by known and trusted staff. Dying a week after being discharged from hospital meant those 48 days became her very last days. We could have done better for Mrs EP and I am privileged to be able to share my thoughts as a human factors specialist on how we might be able to learn lessons and also to apply those lessons. Human factors is a term you may have heard before. A lot of people think it is about all the reasons that we get things wrong, or to use the vernacular, stuff up, because of our human nature. We can be lazy, we can be selfish or greedy, and we overcome these by working harder, following the rules always. But safety is not really built like that. 
it certainly cannot be reliable like that either. We work in complex organizations where sometimes we are asked to do a job that we don't have the right or updated skills and knowledge to do, all the right tools to carry out key tasks or activities, and in some cases, a voice in order to question or challenge key decisions that affect us. Many decisions that are made about how we must work are by people who often do not actually know how we have to work day to day. They do not understand the demands, the pressures, or how very hard it can be to get the job done with what we are given and in the time we are expected to do it. Human factors approach seeks to understand the environmental, organizational, and job factors and human and individual characteristics which influence behavior at work and can affect our patient's safety. This means we must consider one, the job, two, the individual, and three, the organization when we want things to go right or when trying to stop things going wrong in our workplaces and for our patients and residents. One, the job includes areas such as the design of the workplace and work environment and general workload issues relating to the demands the job makes on people's perceptual, cognitive, and physical performance, including interpersonal interactions. Two, the individual includes the skills, knowledge, attitudes, values, habits, personality, and other attributes that individuals bring to their job. And number three, the organization includes management systems and organizational structure, shift patterns, roles and responsibilities, resources, leadership, and contract agreements. In other words, human factors is concerned with what people are being asked to do, the task and its characteristics, who is doing it, the individual and their competence, and where they are working, the organization and its attributes. Human factors interventions will not be effective if they consider these aspects in isolation. All of my recommendations will try to integrate all three aspects. I would recommend that staffing levels and skill mix be reviewed. The artificial separation of side A and side B is a necessity of the fact that there are only two registered nurses on shift during the day. This seems to be an approach to try to somewhat manage these nurses' workload. Arguably, the demands of half of the 55 residents is still too much for one nurse on any given shift. The common reality must be that there are many times a side B nurse needs to be part of a care episode for a side A patient, and vice versa, and blurred lines of responsibility could have patient safety implications. When judging the quality of policies and procedures, it is critical to ask whether staff can easily access these, whether they can understand and interpret them appropriately, and whether staff are given the opportunity to input and or are kept up to date with any changes or modifications. This is not only true of those staff working permanently in the aged care setting, but also those who are part of the wider care team who interact and attend to patients. This case shows up some potential gaps in knowledge of members of the care home staff and also the attending doctor in terms of protocol. The responsibility to rectify this is a shared one across the job, individual and organisational aspects. 
Finally, healthcare relies on effective and appropriate interaction with patients, families, colleagues, and members of multidisciplinary teams with complex and dynamic environments. However, cultural elements can make it very difficult to ensure that these interactions promote and maintain patient safety. Being presented with incomplete information within urgent and emergency scenarios and a backdrop of imbalanced power relationships is common. The latter can particularly disadvantage lower status groups who are inhibited to challenge colleagues or superiors to verify and clarify information, orders or plans. Introducing assertiveness training for those groups who find it harder to find their voice so they can more effectively advocate for their patients is one avenue to begin to help to promote well-developed communication in aged care settings. Yet a much more powerful avenue is training that encompasses a wider set of non-technical skills. Non-technical skills goes considerably further than just communication skills and encompasses decision-making, situation awareness, leadership, and stress management. The full set of seven core non-technical skills include situational awareness, decision-making, communication skills, teamworking, leadership, stress management, and fatigue management. Non-technical skills training can complement other system and organisational changes to help to support patient safety within aged care teams. One of the keys to the success of such programs is delivering them in an interprofessional way within existing work teams. Focusing on nurse activities or actions in this case does not provide us with the full picture of what went wrong, and so any remedial action that focuses only on them is ill-advised. Let's now listen to our second commentary from Angela Casey, a training consultant at Dementia Training Australia. The commentary is titled, The Recognition and Reporting of Pain and Changing Health Status of Residents. Pain is a common problem for older people and is particularly noted in people living in residential aged care facilities. Unfortunately, it remains under-recognised and under-treated. One of the biggest barriers to pain assessment and treatment is cognitive impairment or dementia. This is because cognitive impairment can compromise the ability of the older person to self-report pain. The Australian Pain Society defines pain as a distressing experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage with sensory, emotional, cognitive and social components. Self-report of pain has long been the gold standard means of identifying pain. It is important to recognise that a person with cognitive impairment may be experiencing pain even though they cannot communicate this verbally. Any person in pain requires treatment. Access to pain relief was recognised as a human right in the Declaration of Montreal in 2010. Unrelieved pain is known to cause many complications. These include depression, social withdrawal, sleep disturbances, impaired mobility, decreased engagement in activities and reduced quality of life. 
Unrelieved pain is also likely to exacerbate fall risks, cognitive decline, deconditioning, malnutrition, and gait disturbances. Multiple studies have been conducted on the prevalence of pain in people living in residential aged care facilities. Interviews with direct care staff indicate pain prevalence rates of between 45 to 83% of residents with current pain. More detailed research has demonstrated a higher rate of pain in reporting prevalence rates of between 83 to 93% of residents with pain. 52% of permanent aged care residents have a diagnosis of dementia. More residents are likely to have some symptoms of dementia but not yet have a diagnosis. 40% of residents are unable to report pain due to a major cognitive or communicative disability. This means there are likely to be residents with pain who report in different ways, choose not to report, or have difficulty in reporting. Known barriers include dementia, hearing and vision loss, dysphagia, dysarthria, and cultural and linguistic diversity. Another barrier is that older people are known to have attitudes and beliefs about pain that include accepting it as a normal part of aging, thinking it can't be treated, fear of potential addiction to medication, and reluctance to distract or interrupt health professionals. All these factors mean there should be greater awareness of pain prevalence in residential aged care facilities. The Australian Pain Society argues there needs to be a pain vigilant and pain therapeutic culture embedded into all facilities. Assessment for pain in people living in residential aged care facilities should include verbal self-report and an observational and behavioural assessment. This means observing all residents for possible signs of pain, including facial expressions, vocalisation, behavioural changes, changes in mobility, and changes in routine or activity patterns. Staff also should consider any causes of pain or discomfort. This includes injury, pressure areas, constipation, oral health problems, or a recent fall. There are several validated observational or behavioural tools that may be used. All members of the interdisciplinary healthcare team should have the assessment findings communicated to them. The best approach is to involve nurses, direct care workers, medical staff and allied health clinicians. A treatment plan needs to be implemented and regularly reviewed. Guidelines on pain assessment are available in Australia via the Pain Management Group Kit for Aged Care. These guidelines specify that pain assessment is an ongoing process that should occur on admission, in the event of a significant change in a resident's condition, any time pain is suspected, and at least every three months. Pain assessment for people with cognitive impairment is difficult. There may be several factors causing uncertainty about what is happening to the person, especially if they are unable to communicate verbally. Other factors that may be impacting on the person are factors such as depression, fatigue, or agitation. Assessments must be carefully conducted in order to assert what is happening.
He points about the recognition and reporting of pain relevant to this case study are recognizing there were several barriers preventing this person from reporting pain verbally, recognizing the underlying conditions and comorbidities already diagnosed for this person. It is likely she was already experiencing a degree of chronic pain. Pain assessments should be conducted on a regular basis and if there is a change in condition. This person experienced a major change in condition, meaning the pain assessment process should have been implemented as a matter of routine. Let's now listen to our third commentary from an aged care pharmacist, Dr. Natalie Jokanovic. The commentary is titled Off-Label Therapy and Medication Management. Off-label prescribing refers to the prescription of medications outside of currently Therapeutic Goods Administration or TGA approved indications, dose, route of administration or patient group, e.g. age and gender. Prescribing of this nature is incredibly common, particularly in the fields of obstetrics, paediatrics, oncology and aged care. Sufficient safety and efficacy data are frequently lacking in these population groups as a result of exclusion from clinical trials due to age and comorbidity. However, not all medications with suitable evidence will be approved. These include medications for uncommon indications or those who have come off patent and in the generic market that may be deemed to be of little financial benefit for pharmaceutical companies to undergo a costly approval process. In the absence of available approved alternatives, clinicians are left to weigh up the clinical and ethical considerations of off-label use. Off-label medication use has been associated with a significantly greater risk of adverse events and should only be considered once options for approved medications have been exhausted, are unsuitable or not tolerated. Should there be sufficient, high-quality evidence to support a clinical benefit and this is deemed to outweigh any risks, the decision to commence treatment should be made with the resident and or a family member. Residents need to be provided with an adequate opportunity to understand the implications, are aware of the off-label nature and provide informed consent prior to initiation. In many cases, the family or authorised guardian will need to provide this consent on their behalf. In the monitoring of off-label medication use by clinicians, aged care staff and pharmacists are therefore crucial to ensuring the timely reporting and prevention of potentially yet unknown adverse events. Medication management is however particularly complex in residential aged care. General practitioners and pharmacists are typically not co-located relying on timely and relevant communication from aged care staff. A large volume of information transfer is required on a daily basis and often across disciplines and organisations, increasing the risk of incomplete communication and medication errors. Medication errors can however occur at any stage of the medication management pathway and frequently occur during administration. 
trials investigating the impact of integrating pharmacists within residential aged care, enabling on-site support to improve medication use, are currently ongoing. The tragic case at the centre of this RAC communicate issue, centred around the incorrect use of bleach baths, highlights the ease at which medication errors can occur. Evidence for the efficacy of bleach baths for reducing the severity of skin conditions, such as atopic dermatitis, is currently inconsistent. Nonetheless, bleach baths have been used due to their activity against Staphylococcus aureus, but are strictly required to be diluted in water for use in baths. Requiring a quarter to half a cup of 6% sodium hypochlorite solution per bathtub filled with lukewarm water. The uncommon use of this treatment and specialist instructions demonstrates the importance of clear and detailed documentation to prevent ambiguity that may arise from verbal orders alone. Incorrect preparation and administration, including dose, choice of diluent and application, may lead to the release of toxic gas, irritation in the skin, eyes and respiratory tract, and chemical burns. Several errors occurred that could have prevented the occurrence of this tragedy. This included a lack of communication with the resident's family members, both at initiation of the prescription and ongoing updates, despite the resident's inability to provide informed consent due to dementia. The directions for the administration of the bleach bath were inadequate and not questioned sufficiently by several staff, resulting in ongoing incorrect administration and hospitalisation due to chemical burns. Both documentation and communication between all relevant parties, resident and their family, aged care staff, prescribers, pharmacy, fell significantly short of recommendations. There are a number of actions we can all take to reduce medication errors such as the above across the stages of the medication management process in residential aged care. Aged care staff should ensure residents and family members are provided with adequate information and have provided informed consent for the initiation of all new therapies, irrespective of whether this is a prescription or over-the-counter medication. Clear documentation and open communication with family and treating health professionals are essential to enable early intervention should deterioration in a resident's clinical state occur. Aged care staff should also not hesitate to question and clarify unclear or unusual medication orders, and we must not always assume that these checks were taken by staff before us. The Residential Aged Care Facility Associated Pharmacy and Medication Review Pharmacists are a great port of call for medication education, advice and administration concerns. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Remember, the online print versions are available at our website at thecommunicase.com. This will also include a list of resources and any references that the experts have recommended. I'm Joseph Ibrahim. Thanks for listening.